Ogafali Garland and nine other respected Aboriginal elders have been working closely with the city to help the council deliver a reconciliation action plan. The aim of this rap is to repair fractured relations with the First Nations community here in Borland and ensure Aboriginal people, history and culture is represented and respected. For the past few years, Ogafali has had a seat at the table with Perth Council's top brass. A far cry from his days as ATSIC Commissioner when he couldn't even get a foot in the door. A lot has changed since then and he's bloody proud of it. Kaya, I'm Phil Wallystack and you're listening to me. Listen, us talking. Welcome, Uncle Farty Garlet. You're looking well. Feeling well. Tell us, Uncle, who's your mob and where are you from? Well, if I went back to my, my grandmother, it was Jureen Bennell, a pretty well-known Aboriginal family on one side, and then the Birach, my grandmother Clara was a Birach, and so all the Birach mob, and then her mother was a Penny. So if you keep going through our, our family tree, you'll find out that we're just about related mm. to everybody, in it? Well, there's big big family names, the name big, of that. Big family names, yeah, <laughs> and then the Yule's on the other side and Jacob's on the other side, and yeah. so really well connected throughout our country. So a lot of young people are coming to me and saying, you know, and then I've been able to give them a, a bit of a background on who their grandmother was and their great-grandmother. And um, so, you know, just as you get older, you just have that sort of knowledge. Yeah. And it's really good to share it with young people who sometimes can't even go past their mum and dad, hmm. you know, and um, connection to country is about knowing language and also knowing who you, where you come from. Yeah, but it, it builds up that more that family, you know, that family sense of yeah. not saying, oh, you, you mob from over there, you mob from over here. We all one mob, aren't we? We all one mob and we, we, we move around. Yeah. And uh, some of the conversation, never arguments, conversation is about, well, you know, we, we moved around to different areas and hmm. no one person owns any different area, you know, because we've all been through there at some stage in our lives or our grandparents or our ancestors, you know. So, yep. you know, connected, we are connected. Simple as that, yeah. Yeah. I want to go back a few years, mm. right back to when you were born. Right. Now, you always believed you were born in Bruce Rock Hospital. Mm. What's the real story? The real story is that, um, is that after talking to some of my aunties um, and just remembering that in the 1950s there wasn't that much room in, in hospitals for, for Nyungas. So most of the births were delivered by your grandmother or your great-grandmother and um, mm. and apparently in talking to one of my aunties, she said, no, you were born in the bush. Mm. Your mother went into the hospital later when uh, there were some complications. So that's how I ended up in the hospital. So it was interesting to find that out. Uh, but, but I understood it a lot better when she said that because, uh, you know, even the native section at Bruce Rock Hospital at the time was on the veranda. Yeah, well, that, and that was right across. I mean, my grandfather was born mm. on the balcony of Kellerberon Hospital. Yeah. 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 But that's, I don't understand that, though, you know. But, well, you know, it's, it's probably hard to understand, but um, that's, that's for the times, 1950s, like, you know. Mm. I guess that even even mum ending up on the veranda, yeah. because you needed um, a bit more attention, was probably um, better than them saying no and you stay out the bush and, you know. Yeah. Other, other things eventuated from the complications that she had. So, you know, I take it all into into my stride as far as the times and the mm. year we were in and, you know, those sorts of things, and I'm used to that. And um, But that's know. something to be proud of too, isn't it? 
It's really like proud. you were born really on proud. a country, you know, you're like Re- the, really. the last generation to yeah. be born in the bush. Yeah, you know? and, um, you know, to think that, um, you know, we were always surrounded by family. Mm. And um, so, you know, I was an only child and um, yet I had all these cousins that were brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles that were actually were mothers and fathers. So, yeah. you know, I had a really, really good life. So this was a time where your family wasn't living on the reserve. They were actually living well, in humpies. Well before the reserve. Wow. Reserves weren't even thought about then. We were, we were t- uh, living in uh, bush camps with three poles up in there and a bit of uh, ashen bags around it and um, mm. a bit of tin that we got from the dump. So, you know, and, and I guess when I talk about it to my kids and other people is that um, and they talk about the reserve and how the reserve were. Mm. Well, I was before the reserves. and um, tell, tell, tell me some stories. Like, uh, you, yeah. We don't hear a lot of stories. We're always brought up hearing stories about our mob living on the reserves yeah. and, you know, that community sense of it. Yeah. But living in the bush, yeah. was it your family on your own or was it other families as well no. living in humpies? No, there was other families as well. Some, sometimes we were on our own, but most times uh, the um, – and, and you see them now, the nature reserves and places like that. Yep. It's where um, young guys used to do to go and um, stay because they were waiting for, like, harvest season, um, land clearing, shearing, and it was a place that farmers could access, um, you know, labour. Mm. And so – and when you moved to these places, you all you had was um, carrying your blankets and um, – and a few other items, cooking utensils and stuff like that. And um, so then you scrounge around for um, things to build a, build a camp. And mm. a lot of those camps were, um, you know, three sticks together like the old teepee over in, um, yeah, yeah. in, in, uh, in, in with Americans, yep. Indians. Did you call it Maya Maya back then? What, what? No, we just called it a camp. Just a camp? It was just a camp, yeah. And it was like, you know, we're just so used to it. We never, never used the, the word Maya Maya that I remember. But um, mm. it was just, um, you know, dirt floor. Really well cleaned. How big? Uh, enough to fit, um, you know, probably seven, eight kids in and, you know, grandmother and grandfather and a couple of uncles, so big enough to sort of accommodate all of us. Wow. With a fire at the front that was for cooking and um, and for warmth. And, um, Sound like you had a two-storey teepee. <laughs> <laughs> to us it seemed like a mansion, you know. Wow. We saw it as a mansion because, um, you know, we, we were you, you were that happy that um, it wasn't about the accommodation, it was about who you were with. Mm. And the love that you got from you know your family and your uncles and your and your aunties and also your grandmother and grandfather who yeah. you know bore a big responsibility for all of us while you know mum was away working. Did li- living in the bush like that? Did you have to hunt for food all the time? All the time. All the time. So a lot, lot of cult- cultural protocols. Major. Yeah. Major cultural um, learning protocols into how to dress uh, meat that we got. Mm. Understanding that we didn't take any more than we needed to, that people's totems were were also embedded in the animals that we that we kill. So respect was number one. Mm. Um, you know, certain bits and pieces had to be left out there where the animal was taken from, and uh, just showing respect to um, you know to the animal when you um, when you when you took it. Sharing a lot of sharing. Yeah, never took any more than you could um, that you didn't share with other people. You know, so you still lived in harmony. Total harmony, yeah. With the country, with the land. Well, the country was, um, you know, was um, we had to look after it. Mm. So with my grandfather too, as as a guide and um, and a teacher, and all my uncles, it was about not cutting trees down that you didn't need to cut down, breaking trees off when you're walking through the bush, like you know, mm. breaking a branch off. That was a no-no. Um, 
killing things that you couldn't eat, like even birds with our Shanghai's and stuff like that. So yeah. everything was based around this is, you know, they belong to us and we belong yeah. to them and, you know, we need to look after them and they look after us. So I remember um, old Pop Kev Davis, mm. yeah, Wiley. Yeah. He was the one who taught me how to walk on country. Yeah. And every time we walk through the bush and he'd always say, you know, don't break this down or don't, or don't cut That's that it, down. Yeah. And, yeah. and then he'd make me turn back and look back and look at the little shoots that I stepped on, you know, mm. and making sure you know how to walk on country, you know. Yeah. But you, you lived it, you know. And yeah. a, a, lot of, a lot of our mob got denied that, eh, you know, taken away at a young age. Is, yeah. I suppose there's two, two sides of your feelings about that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm you know, even, even with the Stone generation, it was like it is not, not as though that the... Um, the native wealth or the native affairs at the time were went looking for us, and sometimes they did find us. They had um, uh, parole officers that came around, mm. and they'd come around. They'd be dressed in khaki with a big, like slouch hat on, and you know they really looked apart. Yeah. And um, and of course, um, we always got the warning that they were coming because a lot of us didn't have cars, and we recognised cars that were nice and shiny and clean, and we hit the road. You know. Yeah. We were told to run and hide, and and of course we had no guns, and the dogs were our only means of getting food, so mm. they ran and hid with us because um, they'd get shot as well. The dogs so, knew too. The dogs knew as well, yeah. Really? These wagers were not um, not going to be friendly with us, you know. Yeah. And they could be bringing trouble, so. A lot of stories that we hear, wider community, you know, especially wagers. Yeah. They think that this stuff happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you know, mm. and they don't think that people here are still here today like yourself. Yeah. You know, it was born on country, lived in the bush. They they don't they I don't know whether they won't accept it or it's just uneducated. You know, I think it's I think they find it really hard to grasp that um, that we were treated like that because even when you're talking about um, the reserves and all the racism that was in the towns, um, I think people find that uh, really difficult to to understand. I look, I've got a, a mate of mine that is a farmer, mm. and him and I spent a lot of time together, played football together. He even says to me now. Um, I didn't know you were living like that, Farley. Mm. You know, I thought that you were living like me in a house and um, with all these other, you know, running water and stuff like that. And I said, no. And he said, oh, I'm really sad to hear that. I said, well, you don't need to be sad, mate. I said, you know? Yeah. We got through that. And um, it built up a resilience in us and um, an ability to cope with a lot of things. Yeah. And, um, so, you know. Well, that's funny you said that. Like your mate said that he thought he was living in a house with running water. Yeah. But you end up moving to the reserve. Your family moved to the reserve. Eventually. And there was no running water in the houses. No, no. Well, we was in Tinampis on, the, on that reserve, which they called the Meriden Reserve, mm. uh, before they even decided that they would um, uh, build us these reserve houses. And, of course, all the Nyoars and I can remember my grandmother and all these other older ladies and aunties saying, by gee, these wages must like us. Mm. They're going to build us a house to live in, you know, because they had no um, no idea what that house was going to be like, but they just knew there was going to be a roof over our head. So they mm. were really looking forward to it and excited. The layout of the floor, the floor plan of of the, what would you call it? Is a house on the reserve? For all intents and purposes, it was a house. And um, the floor plan was that there was a big cement block mm. that... Um, had, uh, were built with tin and there was two bedrooms and a veranda mm. and uh, with a hole right through so that the wind could blow right through under the house. So if you're standing in the kitchen and the wind was blowing outside, your ankles would be getting freezing huh. from the wind, wind blowing through. But yeah. you know, it, had, it had a roof over the head. Yeah. Um, you know, what Jungas would do is they blocked off the verandas and turned it into a four-bedroom, from a two-bedroom to a four-bedroom. <laughs> so 
you know. We still do that today. We still do it today. We exactly. ten bedroom houses. <laughs> and we all fit in there. There's still not enough for them. Yep, <laughs> get, get that one. Yep. Yeah. There's, um, people always thought that, you know, living on the reserves was a bad place because it was poor and rough, yeah. you know. What, was it bad for you? No. No, it was like surrounded by family. Mm. Surrounded more, by because more families come more to visit. Family has moved in there because it was a designated spot. Mm. This this is now stopped the idea of us just going to build an auntie in a bush. Yeah. Now they set up a, a bit of land so that all the young guys just need to move in there. You know. So really, what they're saying is, you don't belong to the bush no more. You belong no, to this part. And we want to keep an eye on you. Yeah. The other thing to that that I found out later on is that um, we want you all in one spot so we we, we know you. who's coming and who's going and. Who's doing what? So um, yeah. that was the other idea. But for us, it was um, it was about family and friends and cousins and uncles and aunties and a place of great happiness. Mm. Did you? How how old was you when you moved to the reserve? I wasn't going to school, so I must have been about. But then that's not to say my age, but I was probably about five. So when you're living in the humpies on the bush, you was doing the culture. Totally. You yeah. know, just Noongar culture, hunting, gathering, you know. You move to move to the reserve and then that's when you started going to school. Yeah. That must have been an eye-opener, especially for Wadula kids too, eh? Oh, well, it was. I mean, you know, but see, just, just to add to that is that uh, they didn't build those houses for a long time, so I was probably a lot older by the time I went to school, you know. Mm. Um, they built those houses later on, but um, there was a bus that was going, on, going past the reserve and um, they wouldn't even pick us up. So rain, hail or shine, we used to walk to school, you know. How far? All of us, eh? How far? Uh, just maybe a kilometre, cold mm. weather, hot weather, whatever, no shoes, no jumpers that I ever remember having. I wonder where the best footy players we come from in our country, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Mm. We'd crawl over broken glass to get there before, on the Friday for the sports days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that's what we were good at, you know. And, D- did uh, you know about school before you was uh, on the reserve? Grandfather had an idea that school was something that I needed to do, you know. Mm. And I remember him talking to me when I was that keen to actually go. And he kept saying to me, you need to, you need to go to school, Farley. Mm. And I kept saying to him, yeah, what for? And he said, you need to learn to write your name mm. and to count to 100. I thought, I'll write, write my name and count to 100 because that was his limit to, to his knowledge of school. And so yeah. if I just went there and learned to sign my name and, um, and count to 100, he would have been really happy. So your grandfather, he um he, he had a bit of knowledge about the education system. Yeah. So what what's what's his story? Where did he come from? He's uh he was a he was a bush bloke too, and he never never had any idea of a uh, never had an education. Mm. Couldn't even write his name, so he'd write across every time he did that. But he knew that um that his grandkids had to had to get an education. They had to be, learn to read and learn to write and be able to I guess function in um, in the wider wider world. You know. Pretty strict on us going to school. If we mm. were ever, ever lagging, it'd be, you know, come on, get along, hurry up. Yeah. I, I always find that fascinating. The more elders that I talk to and tell their story and they talk about their, their parents and their grandparents, and it's always the parents and the grandparents before mm. you mob who pushed across how important having an education is, you know? Yeah. And do, do our kids take that for granted? Do our families take that for granted these days? I think they absolutely do. I, I think that, and I talk to my son now, and he's um, he's in university, and um, convincing him that school was uh, paramount. If you want to, you want to keep on, uh, you know, compete in a in an open market with everybody else and be seen as an equal, is uh, a good education takes you there. You know? 
Yeah. And so yeah. Now I read somewhere that you you didn't get much of an education though. No. As a child. No. So how did you find a way to educate yourself? Well, school was a funny place because um, I don't think teachers even recognised that we were, were smart enough to even learn anything, you know. So we'd go to school there and we'd play around and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, recess was number one for us, kicking the footy around and playing games. And so I never ever took a report home in all the years that I went to school. But my yeah. my stepfather, my mum had met a man now that was a compulsive uh, newspaper person. He would buy the newspaper every day. Some would say I was a compulsive Toilet paper fuller. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, after we read it, we used it for that. Well. So, you know, that's another story. Yeah. But, um, so, so, there's, so uh, who was it? Uh, your My stepfather. Was your Bruce. stepdad. Yeah. Right. Bruce Sandy, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, he liked to bet on the horses. Ah. And so he'd be reading the, you know, everything about the horses. And, you know. Oh, he didn't put part of the paper. <laughs> <laughs> I had the rest of it. <laughs> and, of course, I, was, I got fascinated by the news. Mm. And I'd read it and... Um, Learning the words and putting them together, and um, that, that was my education. How, that, did you, how did you put them together? Well, I was just looking at the sentences. You right. Know, what word goes here and, you know, what, what this word actually means and, um, you know, being, being able to fit like this big puzzle of all these words hmm. together in a sentence. And, um, so you just taught yourself from reading the paper? Absolutely taught myself, yeah. Wow. Um, to the point where all my cousins, who uh, when we used to go to the shop, they used to stand outside and say, you go in and talk to the waiter because you know how to talk waiter. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I felt mortgage. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was. was just... it, uh, uh, is there is was there one part of the newspaper like was it was it sport or was it politics or was oh. it something that that sort of brought you in where you what you read most? You know. Yeah. Look, for me, it was um, you know, sport was 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 pretty number one as for you know. Or early stages, but then I got into news. I got into reading the news, and I love love reading what was happening in in the rest of the world or in WA. So or in your Australia. mind was already travelling around was, the world. My mind was travelling, yeah, yeah travelling and wondering wondering where you know where all these things are happening, and I'd be imagining all these different places and um, mm. and putting those words in. You know, because journalists were really they were wordsmiths, and um, and for me um, to understand that and then to learn to write and um, and to be able to put those things in a sentence, and uh, yeah. you know, till the end of my school days, um, my teacher got me to read a story to the rest of the class. Wow! Because I could read, I could read the story, and I could read it, read it better than anybody else. Well, I reckon you might have shocked those teachers too, eh? <laughs> I think I did shock her, yeah. Because, uh, like you're saying, you know, they they thought that Nungas no, couldn't learn, no. and then suddenly here you come in. Yeah. Suit and tie on. That's, no. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, the thing is, like, you know, and, and telling, reading this whole story, you know. Yeah, the thing is, like, um, while I was going to school, it was like the perception was that you were just going to be a labourer, mm. and so you really didn't need much of an education, you know. You reading the paper like that, and then not only learning to read, but understanding the yeah. white follower world, you yeah. know, all that. Do you think that helped you get, you know, to do what you do today? I often talk about it today when I give a give a bit of an example about where I come from. Is that um, I learned the white, white man's ways, mm. and I learned his language. I know where his, all his family came from. Yep, they never learned nothing about me. Yeah, they talk about closing gaps and things, you know. Yeah, that's the biggest gap there, isn't it? It was the biggest gap there, and um, once I learned um, a lot of their history and um, their language, 
I could converse any time with them, you know, over anything, any subject. Because, hey, I was right up with the newspaper as well. So if they started talking about what happened over in the eastern states and, you know, I'd chip in with my uh, two bowls worth, you know. Your life was documented. Mm. And it was documented by A.O. Neville policies, wasn't That's it, it, back yeah. then? Chief, yeah. Chief Protector of Aborigines, or yeah. so-called Protector of Aborigines. Mm. Yeah. What's, um, do you have any memories about him or the impact that he had on our people? Well, the impact was is that we'd see this um, the patrol officer. Mm. He'd come and he'd be doing regular checks. and um, But there wasn't just one, I heard. No, no. There was it was like the whole community. Diff- different regions. But the other thing to that is that... Um, uh, the post off, postmaster recorded, mm. shopkeepers recorded, farmers recorded, uh, different shops that you had frequented would always put an heading in there, uh, saw the lad today, never ever said saw the my name, Yeah. saw a mum and the lad today, the lad looked and they uh, knew exactly clean and tidy, yeah, wow. or, you know, uh, air wasn't done or whatever. You know, reports of our bush camps is that... Um, you know, that was a bit um, rough and ready itself, even though them old women used to sweep that as clean as anything with a, with a bush broom, you know. At, at that time, you just thought this is just life. Yeah. You didn't think nothing of it. Yeah. But now, looking back at it, yeah. how does that make you feel? Well, <laughs> I could feel angry, but I don't feel any anger for that, um, for the past, you know. I just felt mm. that um, times we're living in, they didn't understand us. We learned to understand them. Um, and so it was this, um, even when you're town, everybody was watching you when you went to town. Mm. You know, you'd be sitting there on the park and people would be driving past staring at you and sort of you went into the shop, you had to wait till everybody else got served. It was back in the days when uh, when you walked into the shop, if there's other wages in there, they get served before you. Still happens. Still happens today. Still happens. Uh, doctors were the same. Yeah. You know. When, yeah. My, when my wife and I first got together and I used to tell her all this sort of stuff and... She didn't really believe me at the time yeah. until she seen it happen. Yeah. One day she saw it happen. And the other thing to that, Phil, is that I'd built up enough confidence in um, in being able to read and, and write is that when I went into the butchers one day and there was a bloke called Mr Stevens mm. and I got to know him really well after this incident and um, I walked in there to get served and um, he served a couple of people before me and I just and I walked up to the counter and said, excuse me, Mr Stevens, but I was here before them. Mm. And he looked at me and it was a bit of a shock to him. He said, no, you're right, you was before them. And he served me. And my mum was in town a week later and he said to her, you know that boy of yours? He's a really smart lad. And that was like me, like, you know? Yeah. Well, so because I you asked the question about, you know, that I wanted to be served just as well, I had money. Well, that's it. Was there a lot of our mob speaking up back then? No. No, a lot of them. And you think that's what the what the issue was, or was it just our was it that mentality of our people that you know what the white world forced on our mob that way of thinking? I think you know, like this is it. This is what you got to do. Yeah, but I think our mob got so used to it that um, it would have been seen as being really, you know, could be aggressive. You could be they'd interpret it as you Mm. know, well, look at this smart black. Well, you had had the threats of getting your children taken away if you done wrong. Yeah, you had to watch everything. So you had the fear of talking. Yeah. Or speaking up, not talking. The fear of actually challenging. Challenging. That, you know, I was in the shop and um, I just wanted to be served as well. Hmm. I think I was lucky that it was Merv Stevens and I remember his name as clear as day and many became pretty good friends afterwards. And I actually even questioned him. Got a bit of a reputation with him after as uh, being a smart lad, so, you know. <laughs> Still never accepted him fully into hmm. the, the, the way to the community, but, you know, at least one bloke thought I was pretty smart. No, that's it. So all those things are documented 
Have you read all those things that was documented? Yep, I actually wrote a letter in to get um, get my the documents that they wrote and the reports that they wrote about me. And um, anything in particular <laughs> that just stood out? Nothing that I um, just that they never called me by my name. It was mm. always the lad. Yeah, the mother and lad was seen here, and um, so there wasn't much importance in saying, "Oh, we saw Marge and Farley in town," and you know, hmm. and uh, Marge was clean and Farley looked very clean, and mother's obviously doing a good job. It was none of that. It was just simple as you know, yeah. the the lad looked um, clean and tidy. So and in a, in a way, you basically know everything that you've done mm. in your life, except that um, there were big black lines through a lot of it. Wow! And so I w- always wondered why did they censor this here and that. You know, it was my report, and yet I couldn't read it. So what was, you know, but they did that. So you still wonder about, you know, what, what was the meaning of that and why did they do that? And and it mm. would have been good to know, if you're going to know your truth, to know all of it. So still wondering. They claim that it was done for your own good, you yeah. know, documenting everything and having these spies. That's mm. what we call them. We call them spies around yeah. the community, you know. Do you think there's a sense that the Wadjalas are still doing that today? Absolutely. They still haven't accepted us as, uh, you know, as equals in all of this. Mm. And, you know, yeah. Why? 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 I don't know. I just think that they're, uh, I, I really don't think that they understand that we know a hell of a lot more than what they know. Mm. And I think they're frightened of that. I mean, you know, you talk about when we can talk about our family and we can put everybody in it, mm. you know, and we don't document it down. We just, this is memory stuff, you know, yeah. of the life we lived and, um you know, all the things that we've done and all the cultural stuff and how we're connected to, you know, flora, fauna yeah. and the stories. And um, I had a conversation the other day about dual naming hmm. and uh, somebody said to me, oh, you know, why don't we look at dual naming? I said, these fellas, they all got names. they got names. We're going to talk about dual naming and put your way to the name there. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's good. They, they already got your names. Yeah. Right? That's so, I see a lot of that on social media with yeah. people commenting about dual naming and they're saying, yeah. why are they changing the name? Yeah. Well, we never change the name. No. That's the name the place was given. And we gave that name for a meaning. Yeah. That that name's got a story behind it as well. It's not just the name that all of a sudden we pulled out of a hat, you know. Yeah. And yeah. that's what Rogers don't understand. When you're changing a name, you're changing direction. Yeah, that's Because what they don't realise is that it was the hills, mm. you know, Karamurta. Karamurta, yeah. And they call, they, they've got a bad habit of naming things after themselves. You know, but that's a song line, isn't it? That's a song and line. it's a journey to find your way, and that's, that's why Wadula say lost. I reckon that, that is a, an, a story in itself, you know? mm. and all of this country has a story. Yeah, and one day when these Wadulas are ready and willing mm. and understanding of us, pull down their guards. We will tell them those stories. Yeah, you know? and we'll connect them to it because they're here. They're not going to go anywhere. Mm. So you know, do you think that? Um, um, just touching on that, do you think that I don't know how to put this without sounding racist? No. But uh, <laughs> well, that, that won't worry me either. You know? like, we've been through that. We can handle that. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that um, you know, if Wadjalas stop trying to force their way of life onto other people, mm. then they'll truly start to learn? I think acceptance is a big word um, for, especially for Wadjalas, mm. is to be able to accept somebody for just who they are and not make judgment and um, mm. and um, and give credit when somebody actually knows something and is smart, you know, and to be able to share that instead of thinking that um, mm-hmm. I'm the superior and um, this person is like, you know, yes, I can say this and I can say that and he's not going to really understand what I'm talking about. We actually do. We, yeah. we know more than you think we know. Yep. And, um, you know, we're all out there and we're ready to share a lot of this stuff and mm. but until you're ready. Something that I've noticed over the, over the years and still today 
is that we as blackfellas, we're not saying we want to be the CEOs and managing directors of this company and that company because you're on our country and this and that. We just want to be respected. And it's something so simple, but yet it's like a big shock to Wagalas. Major. We just want to be a part of what's going on, Mm. the wider world, you know. Whatever's happening in the area that we live in, we want to be a part of that. Yeah. Whether it's business, whether it's economics, whether it's um, sport or whether it's anything else. Yeah. We just want to be a part of that and be able to share it, you know. And especially you, because you had that from a young child reading yeah. the newspaper and you was already seeing the world. And yeah, totally. So straight out of school you learned to yeah. read. You, you had this picture in your head of what was happening around the world and the stories that was happening. Yeah. Where did you go to work? You went to work straight after school? I went to work on a farm, as per usual. When you finished school? Yeah. When I, once I finished school, no, I only went to, like, um, a grade 7 and a little bit of high school and then it was um, pointless me even going there because school wasn't giving me much. Mm. Teachers weren't recognising that I had maybe a bit more to offer than I saw my cousins shearing and and um, and uncles and all that. And I thought I can be a good shearer. Yeah, and I reckon I could have been a good shearer because I'm I'm a I'm a person that um, I'm very competitive. But I walked in there and learned to shear, did ten sheep and stood up and said, "Well, this is definitely not for me." Now I know. Now I, we related, so yep. I know our yarns go, and we stretch them over the years. Oh, absolutely. So at the moment, it's at ten. Yeah. Ten sheep. Mm. Was it one? <laughs> I know you like that conk. And look, I could tell you hundred if I want to, you know, and, um, and you'd probably say... Oh, ten yeah. years' time would be hundred. <laughs> when I get a bit older, maybe, yeah. But it was actually ten, and I kept count. Yeah, yeah. And it was, uh, it was with uh, an uncle called Gabby Taylor. He showed it me, you know. Yeah. And I just stood up and said, no, this, this is definitely not for me. I can't. I couldn't see me spending the rest of my life bent over a, a stinking sheep, you know, <laughs> and looking at his guts and all that time. So I said, that's it. Um, and I was, I was, look, I was really happy that I made that decision then and didn't go on and do it when I wasn't, wasn't going to be happy, you know. Well, tell me, how did a, we'll call it a failed shearer. Yeah. <laughs> how did a failed shearer become the commissioner of ATSIC? Yeah. Well, I didn't mind being called a failed shearer too because I thought that was, that took me places where a lot of my shearing cousins never went. Oh, and, um, well, I was working in Midland. We, we, there was a MAG committee out there and there was all of us young old blokes working in there and um, we put this committee together and um, it, it probably dealt with everything that was happening in Midland. Back in, back in those days, Midland was probably the biggest number of Aboriginals and young old living in that area, you know, because mm. it was the one-stop shop when we even come to Perth when we weren't allowed into the city. We'd all go to Midland, jump a train, do our business and get out of town before 4 o'clock. Mm. So Midland became a popular place. And um, somebody started talking about ATSIC. I knew ATSIC was around but I never had any interest in getting into that side of, um, you know, even with the politics stuff. And uh, mm. then I had, I had some women come and speak to me. They said, Farley, you really need to get into ATSIC. ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. Yeah. Why was it set up? Well, it was set up because it gave a voice to all the Aboriginal people and there was ATSIC in every state and every country town or every country area. Yeah. And so it had representatives and it had your own, own representatives that you actually knew, you know. People who are outspoken, mm. people who, who wanted to ask the question about rights and the rights movement and equality and um, all all of the things that affected us at that time. Mm. You know, whether it was um, you know health, uh, incarceration, um, alcohol, drugs wasn't so much then, but mm. it was coming on onto the scene. But to be able to ask the, the government what they were doing about it and mm. hold them accountable because it became a voice. Which which government? What year was that? Um, I think it was I think it was Labor at that time. Bob Ork, Jerry Ann was the um, the founder of uh, ATSIC, 
And so he actually uh, put it up in, in Parliament and it was voted in and it became um, the new entity for the voice for Aboriginal people. Mm. And, um, and of course, election, elections happened all around um, Australia and people picked the people who they thought they could represent them. Yeah. So, yeah. You, you were elected for a th- uh, three-year term. So after three years, that's when you got the elected chair. Yeah, chairperson. Well, I, I mean, I'm, first I was... Um, these women came and said to me that I needed to run for ATSIC and I said, oh, what do I want to run for ATSIC for, you know? Mm. I'm pretty happy you're doing what I was doing. I was working with the education department. Mm. I, I was a, I'd was i made my, my dream job, which was a liaison officer because uh, mm. the liaison officer got a phone and a, and a car to drive around in and um, for me that was it. I'd, this, that was, I'd made it. Yeah. There wasn't any much more that I really wanted to achieve, you know? I, I think that's also a fascinating thing, that, that learning hunger that you had as a child, Man. you know, and then you end up working in the education department, <laughs> totally. you know, to push that on to the next generation, eh? Yeah, tell these other parents so that their kids needed education yeah, and that they needed to get them to school, otherwise I'd be around to visit them tomorrow, you know? Yeah. But them knowing me too and trusting me, you know? Did you have big hopes for that sick? Major hopes. Like, let me just give you, give you a little background to this, the start off of it, yeah. is that when I started denying that I wanted to be with that sick and they said, no, no, you have to. This was them women that saw that what was happening out there and said, no, Farley could go on and do quite a lot of other stuff in Atsing. Mm. And I think they saw that um, because I didn't. I, I, I was just thought we were doing really well out there and they said, no, you need to get into Atsing and that's where the big changes are going to be made, you know, if there are any changes. I, I spoke for all the Nyungas in the, in the uh, metropolitan area at the time. There was two regional councils, a country and a, and a, and a metropolitan one. Yeah, and I was the chair of that. I mean, you know, even going down to the after being elected, and going down to Mandurah to select the positions, like which was the chairperson, the commissioner. And I went down there, and I thought, well, I'll just go there and sit there, and we'll get somebody in, and then mm. I'll get back out to Midland. But when I got there, they said, No, no, you need to be the chair. I said, No, no. And they said, Yeah. <laughs> and so first vote, I was elected. <laughs> and the way the manager for had to get the time walked over and said, Here, Farley, congratulations. Here's a set of keys. And your office is in such and such a place and um, your car's parked around the corner. <laughs> and it was like, what? Any petrol in it? <laughs> <laughs> card. <laughs> card to fill it up. I didn't have to catch anyone anymore. Yeah. You know? I was pulling to the bowels of flash my card and, you know, paid by the federal government. And um, yeah. you, you was meeting with a lot of a, a, a lot of decision makers, politicians, yeah. CEOs, managing directors. But there was someone that wouldn't meet with you. Oh, course. Uh, that was a that was a it's, it's a bit of a story in itself that I was meeting with you know Alan, I think Alan Carpenter was the premier at that time mm. and uh, all the CEOs and um, you know a big organisation that would gladly meet with us and have talks mm. uh, but trying to get into the Perth City Council was very difficult. Yeah. Um, so the mayor of the Perth. mayor at that time would not even have a meeting with us and uh, yeah. and it was like um, it, it was a no no and um, to find myself now sitting on one of their advisory committees is like. Uh-huh, I got you. I was just going to ask you, how does it feel now to be sitting at the table <laughs> well, like, you know, of Perth City Council? Look, I never had any doubts that there were really good people in there. And um, and I found that out over over these years that I've been uh, a, a part of that um, the group that meets over there, mm. is that there were really good people in there, but they weren't in those positions where they could make those decisions, you know. They were just working there. So, you know, but you know, there's always something that I always think about. And I think it's good advice for a lot of young fellows is that, Patience is a virtue, and that, that's fair dinkum, is that, you know, they can do this today, but um, we're still here. Mm. We're not going anywhere. We know where we come from. We know our stories. We know our connections. Yeah. And we'll be here, and it'll change. So this young boy grew up born in the bush, 
lived in Little Humpy, learned to read by reading the newspaper over and over. Mm. Suddenly he's at Parliament House. Yeah. You know, with the federal ATSIC, you're, you're a representative on the federal ATSIC mob. Mm. Who's you meet with at Parliament House? National Commissioner. First phone call, Phil Ruddock, hmm. who was the Aboriginal Affairs Minister, congratulating me and saying that we've got a board meeting on such and such and um, um, I'll contact your PA and um, we'll, we'll meet you over there, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I went over there and that was just a... Well, it was a different kettle of fish because you had all these other leaders yeah. from around Australia who were strong leaders and um, strong voices throughout, um, you know, New South Wales and Victoria and Tasmania and all them places and to sit around the table with them and, um, you know, because we're all vying for the same buck. Was do do you think ATSIC made a lot of positive big big positive changes? Oh, ATSIC was major. Do yeah, we need a back? We do need a voice. We need a voice. Um, you know whether we get the same model back or not, but we certainly need a voice because um, ATSIC's voice became that strong that um, you know if I walked outside and said that I wanted to do a media release, mm. every news outlet in 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 the metropolitan area or even Australia would be there to interview me. Actually, had a journalist that um, went everywhere with me. Mm. And uh, she trained me as a as a um, gave me media training, you know. And, wow. Um, she set me up for you know for the rest of my life, I guess. Okay, so you you talked up to that butcher. Yeah. You know about standing in line. Yeah. And first, mm. so who did you chip for rights for us mob? Well, I mean, I met with John Howard and uh, Phil Ruddock, and um, yeah, you know, Phil Ruddock, I I'd actually had an hour meeting with him, and I said to him, Phil, I need to talk to you about um, some of the you know, some of the things that are happening over there in Yungar country and um, I want to discuss it with you because we need um, some support, you know, mm. and, and some extra monies. And we're sitting down and I'm pouring my guts out to him and he's, and he's you know, yes, father, yeah, yeah, all right, yeah, good. And after an hour we finished and um, I said to him, you know what, Phil? I said to him, I've been talking to you for an hour and I don't think that you heard a word I said. And he said to me, well, Farley, maybe we need to meet again, eh? It's one of the very few times I've felt like getting up and going back to the old young up in the reserve and giving him a few left hooks. Yeah. Maybe that's what they need. I reckon he would have loved it. <laughs> well, I would have anyways. <laughs> Just lip, lip service, eh? Yeah. Just was, lip service. You know, walking the halls of Parliament is, a, is, is like going to a foreign country. Or maybe reckon, maybe to, to Mars. Do you reckon it's, it's changed, changed today? No, never changed. Yeah. Never change. All the stuff that's happening, you read in the paper now, it was happening when I was there. Mm. Um, you know, that's, that's, it's not going to change until we start changing the way we vote and who we vote for. Do you think that um, um, ATSIC got too powerful? ATSIC got way too powerful. It became the major, major voice of uh, Aboriginal people all around Australia. Mm. And all those, all those ATSIC uh, elected arm became brothers in arms. Mm. And so we pushed the same barrow. And government found that really difficult to um, to handle. Is that um, if yeah. one commissioner would say something, all the other commissioners would say something, and don't forget they represented all of Australia, and so yeah. that was a united voice. Because I always hear the yarns of ATSIC fell apart. No, never. Because it got too powerful. It got mm. you know it was making a change, and Look, it got we way can't too have powerful. that. <laughs> yeah, way too powerful, and um, and of course one of the. Um, uh, Ministers at the time who was vying for the uh, leader of the Labor Labor Party made a statement mm. and said that if I get elected, I'm going to um, demolish Hatsik. And he didn't get elected, but uh, John Howard did. And he said, look, I'm going to follow through with what um, that other 
leader said, and so he um, set it in place. Did, did you see it coming? I mean, something so so powerful and, and making big changes and we're, fin- we're finally being heard as well, Aboriginal people. You know, the, the, the thing about ATSIC is that it had all this knowledge and it had all the answers for most of the, the wrongs that was happening in Aboriginal communities. Mm. Government never used it like that. They really didn't want to know those answers and so they had it there and um, they picked every little piece of um, negative stuff and a lot of our mob was the same because, you know, ATSIC had a certain amount of funding and that funding had to be managed. And um, so, you know, people had great answers in the community about what they wanted to do about their issues and their concerns. Mm. But there was all this money that people said they had to get, they never had. It, would, um, it funded and it was um, funded that was set aside especially for these other programs. And yeah. So you couldn't tap into it. So that caused a bit of a, a rift between us and our mob. Well, there's a lot of corruption allegations, isn't there? Lots of corruptors. No, you couldn't corrupt that thing. Yeah. It was so well managed. So all those allegations and that, yeah. you know, how, how did that make you feel? Well, it made us feel, feel sad and, um, you know, a lot of our mob was taking it up, you know. Mm. Ah, you know, what the newspapers wrote and, mm. and, of course, what I learned about the newspapers then too is that um, everything you read in there is not right, you know. Yeah. You can take a small bit of it and that's you know, going to be the, probably what, what, they, what the correct answer is, but um, it stuck. There's a there's a thing a thing that goes around when when you talk about ATSIC in, in the community now, and they say it was set up to fail. Mm. Was it? I think once they gave it funding, and not enough funding, mm. um, so you're always um, you know trying to trying to get funding to do something. Um, it caused issues with our mob because they had great plans to deal with things. These regional councils and also our community organisations mm. how to deal with their specific and. Um, uh, problems that was in their little country towns or in their areas, and um, mm. there was never ever mu- enough money to fund it to actually do those jobs. But if you, if you could have, they would have sorted all of this, all of this stuff out. Man. I, I sort of see it as though it was set up for um, to to be seen that government was doing right by our oh, mob, yeah. but then they didn't realise the knowledge and the strength of you mob. So right. once you got in there mm. and you got powerful, then suddenly it's like, I'm, I'm looking from their side of things, it's like, hey, hang on a minute, this is getting yeah. a bit too serious here. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that they um, I think that they knew the worth of ATIC, but they just didn't want to use it. I think they, um, you know, I think it's a perception of that um, they knew best for us anyways, you know. They, they've been saying it ever since they came here, you know. Mm. Everything we ever did for you was um, for your betterment, you know. Yeah. Uh, and we know that was wrong, but, um, and I think government was no different and, um uh, Liberal and conservatives were really, really hard to deal with. Labor, there were some really good Labor people in there that listened and, um, yeah. you know, took advice and stuff like that. Do you think when ATSIC was disbanded, was that the the lowest point of major of ATSIC for you? Yeah. You know, that was that you can't go any lower? Well, it was. And, um, and when you look at our country towns now and there's none of those organisations anymore, hmm. Their funding was totally reliant well, C- on that. CDP in that, wasn't it? CDP, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was one of the good programs. But also the little corporations in all of our country towns, they had a little elected uh, committee together that was dealing with all of the, um, you know, ailments that was happening in their little towns. Hmm. Uh, once that went, then the towns just sit there now at the moment waiting for, you know, support from someone. Well, I always remember Northam. You know, I grew up in Northam. Classic, yeah. Seeing all our mob and brothers, cousins, you know, sister girls all working, mm. you know, and you had this pride about yourself, yeah. you know. And, unless you're living in, in a country town 
and you see those changes and and that pride and, and the little followers watching their parents, like you're saying, getting up early, you know, dressing up, going to work. They was doing something that was motivated. And then when was it, 2004? Yeah. yeah. And then that's still, what are we, 2022 now? Yep. Quite a long time ago, yeah. That's a lot of down, yeah. down time for our mob, you know? Yeah. And people wonder why, you know, we've got all these mental health issues mm. in our community. Is because you can't, um, you when can't you sit around and doing nothing, you just think over and over and you start to go a bit crazy. Yeah? I mean, CDP was like, you know, it was a, it was a pathway to something. Um, but you, you can't put a value on, on a, a, a husband getting up in the morning or a brother mm, exactly. going to work to do something and coming home with his uniform on and, you know, collecting away and the kids are sitting there looking at it and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I want to do that. And some of them were saying, I want to, I want to, work, I want to do CDP. You know, mm. even though you know we wanted to get them education and get yeah. them to university and stuff, but it was it was it was a role modelling yeah. at its best, and um, that stuff was more important to us than a lot of other stuff. You know, oh, well Just I remember to going, to, going to the CDP offices and and you know half the town was there. Yeah, and you're having this big yarn. Oh, you heard about this one and all the yeah. all the yarns, but yeah. you had that more that community feel. Yeah, you know, and that's what's missing. That is today paramount. And that was a, that was the sadness about um, the demise of ATSIC. and um, mm. it was through no fault of uh, fraud. It was not through no fault of mismanagement. ATSIC was so well run mm. um, by by the national office that you couldn't fraud. There was uh, you know you had to cross the T's and um, dot the I's and everything before you even um, had anything. It had to be in the plans, mm. and so it was well organised. But um, they played the game. We sit here today and we're still talking about a voice and we're talking about treaties and we're talking about, you know, the Uluru Statement and um, mm. this is the thing about being patient, mm. Phil, it, that these things can come and go but we're here mm. and we will still push those things and we don't forget about those things and, you know, one day. Yeah. Do you reckon to come back? I might not be here but, you know, these younger fellas coming up are a lot more wiser and smarter than me and they'll probably shear more sheep and... Probably read more newspapers and be able to do the things that I didn't do, you know. But I did the best I could at the time. What was your proudest moment? Proudest moment is to get elected by my mob. Yeah. To have all these fellows go to to election and uh, run by the electoral committee, you know, with the electoral office, hmm. and to get a phone call from a young bloke called Daniel Morrison. Oh yeah. And said, "You're you're the first one elected, the first one elected." Wow. You know what that meant to me is like, you know, out of all of these fellows that run. Someone had enough faith in me to, to vote me in number one. Yeah. And then to go and take the chairperson and then be a national commissioner. And um, proud moments. At times, did you, you know, when you sit in Parliament House in Canberra or, mm. or you, you, you're waiting to, for the Premier here or something like that, you know, did you ever just think to yourself, here I am? Yeah. You know, I know where I come from. And, you know, you put yourself back into that, that young Farley Garlett mm. sitting there with a newspaper yeah. and learning to read. And you just, you know, you know when you just take yourself away and back to when you was a little fella? Yeah. Did you ever do that when you was at Parliament House? And I do it all the time. I do it today. I'm, I'm running a business now and I do it today. I, um, I think about all the people that went through my life, mm. all the people that I learned things from that probably never meant very much to me at the time. But I sit back now and I know that every little thing that they said to me was for a reason, you know. Mm. And my grandfather, who gave me this cultural knowledge that is is probably, you know, when what I do now is paramount in, to take me where I am. Mm. To uncles who played, might have only said a few words to me, but what they said was important. 
and people I've met over the years. Mm. Really, really treasure all of their stuff, and I and I give credit to all of them for that. Yeah, they never forgot where you come from. Never forget where I come from. Mm. And the proudest moment is when you're standing over there talking to a politician, and you know that your mob elected you. You know, mm. so even though it's only me standing there looking at him, it's um, I got all these other fellows, all these other young ones behind me. Yeah, that's 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 a proud moment. Yeah, no one they got your back. <laughs> Special, special times. Yeah, not today. <laughs> today. Today's a good day. Yeah. Having my nephew interview me. Ah, look, you yeah. can't beat that. Yeah, well, this will be one of your lowest moments when we, get, when we talk about <laughs> I that. Think so. I think so. I think it's good. But you, 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 you've always wanted to make a change by the sounds of it, you know. Yeah. You, you always had the vision of, of around the world and what's happening and and you still want to make a difference today. Mm. You know, is that one of the reasons why you got involved with the City of Perth Advisory Council? Yeah, I thought that I could offer something, you know, being, being elected um, at the you know, chairperson and commissioner mm. is to be able to have some input in there and maybe influence about what was going on in our city, thing that we couldn't do it before, you know. Yeah. And that was, that was paramount. That was exactly what I wanted to be there for, yeah. Yeah. Long overdue, but, you know. Why, why didn't, why didn't ATSIC set up something like that through with the city of Perth? ATSIC, uh, well, we couldn't get in the office. Like I was a national commissioner. Obviously, the mayor wouldn't meet with you. First, I, yeah. I was a national commissioner meeting with with, with the prime minister mm. and uh, and the shadow uh, minister, and couldn't uh, and having a, having conversations with them mm. and get, walking the walls of parliament and couldn't get into and the you Perth just city couldn't council. get into Perth city council. No, it was like you know. Did they ever say why? Well, we know why. Well, <laughs> but did they say why? Not in not in so many words, but you know, you know, you're smart enough to. To put those words there, anyways, without them even saying it, you know. Yeah. And um, and I tell it, I tell it at every you know different meetings over there. I remind mm. people about those days. Back back then, I, I just I, I can't get my head around it. You know what sort of frame of mind they had to be in back then. Mm. The the council, you know, you here's a bloke who was the commissioner. You know, he's he's talking to the prime minister, he's talking to mm. premiers, but our own council. I think it's difficult even today when they think that, um, you know, he's somebody that's been elected by his people. So obviously there's a bit of support there for him. Mm. And, um, you know, he knows everybody. Do you remember the name of the mayor back then? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Natras. Yeah, Peter. Peter Natras. I'll never forget his name. Yeah. I'll never forget his face, his looks. Well, you didn't see him that much, but I'd see him around. The, don't forget I was a TV in the newspaper, <laughs> yeah. right? So I'd see him in there, you know? Yeah. I was just thinking, how silly are you? Yeah, how silly you that you missed out on this opportunity that could, exactly. have, could have even made your tenure in the as the mayor even better. Well, look, look what's happening today with the exactly. council in there. You know, yep. You mob are making changes in. We there. are making changes. Yeah. yeah, and that's right. What are some of the changes you're doing? Well, it's just about you know we're looking at you know street naming, but also about people in the park. You know, most mm. things that are happening in Perth um, have input from us elders sitting on the on the council there. You know? Yep, and that is almost everything. So. And there's a genuine need, want to actually do something. Yeah. And so when you're talking to honest people that really are, really want to be a part of it, you know, and to be able to go down this, um, you know, this era of, you know, working together. Mm. And working together is, is exactly what I call it, you know. Yeah. Is that for once we're sitting there at the table together and we're having a yarn to address a lot of the issues. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. One, one of the things that make me really proud is something that happened uh I think it was yesterday when I was leaving the studio here, and the amount of Noongar words and yeah. names of places yeah. around the place, you know, and it's done in a classy way, 
where we're not forcing it on the people. Yeah. Because I think that's something that we learn as Noongar people when we talk to Wajalas and walk in this Wajala world, is that as, if they feel like they're being threatened with something new, mm. which is ancient yeah. to us, yeah. they sort of switch off and turn off. Mm. But seeing Wellington Square over here, you know, and yeah. the big naming of there and the big words written across there, you know, and we've got the, the cockatoo feathers sitting there, you know, we've got Yagan Square and yeah. the big statue of Yagan. It's... It's showing the the history and the culture, the courage and what we had in Noongar Buja all the time, but in a real classy way, yep. you know, and that's something that's been missing, I think, in Australia-wide, you know. We, we can't force it on the people because they just put their guard up and they turn off, but if we do it in a real classy way, which I always think that us Noongar Mob, Aboriginal people across Australia are just full of class anyway, you know. Some say ask, yeah. but I put the CL in front of it, well. you know, for yeah. coloured. Yeah. <laughs> When you do it in that way, and it makes everyone feel proud, yeah. I think, Wajala as well, of who we are and where we live. Mm. It's something that I'm proud as a young fella, yeah. seeing that that's happening, you know, and, and, and I thank you, Mob, for doing that. You know? mm. Has there been any struggles in there? I think that the early conversations were like, what are the reasons we're here for and, you know, mm. how far is this going to go and is this going to be a... a you know, a couple of meetings and then goodbye and see you later and, you know, thanks. When the first started, yeah. eh, it was like, are we just here to tick a box? Yeah, just to tick a box and, um, you mm. know, but then as it went along, it was like, well, these fellas are fair dinkum, mm. you know, so let's get right into it and be a part of all of this. And um, it's just been really good people, good people in there that were genuine and um, wanted to do things from the heart, you know, yeah. in recognition all of the... Um, you know, trauma and um, dispossession and stuff that happened a long, long time ago. And, uh, mm. you know, even though sometimes it makes us young, I was embarrassed that, you know, they're, they're now bending over backwards to do this. But yeah. they do it with, with such genuine feelings. But, it's good. And that's our nature, though, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is, yeah. We don't want people to go out of their way and, and hurt themselves mm. just to make us happy. Yeah. It's about just doing what's right. We don't want anybody to feel sorry for us. Exactly. You know? We've mm. got something... Be honest, like our, our culture, our family, our language, and know where we've come from. Hmm. And a lot, of, a lot of other people don't have. Yeah. And so that will always stand us in good stead. What's next in the city of Perth? Do you think we need a youth advisory council? Yeah. In there as well? Well, I think there's issues surrounding youth that we need to be tackling, you know. You know, so the young fellas can have their meeting and then put things to you, Mob. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, we're all getting old. Our culture is passing on knowledge. And passing on that knowledge is to have those young people there to, you know, be a part of these meetings but also listen to the stories and listening to the input that elders are putting in and, you know, taking what they need from it. And like mm. I say to a lot of uh, young people today, what I tell you today might not be important but it will be in 20 or 30 years' time, you know. I always say to people that um, you're not here just because you're here. <laughs> There's a plan for you. There's always been a plan for you. Yeah. And if you end up somewhere... That's part of your plan, you know? Yeah. I stood in front of, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, doing a keynote speech at the Indigenous World Conference. Mm. And I thought, from Meriden, from living in that bush, here I am standing in front of all these other First Nations people mm. and doing a keynote speech. Wow. Like, you know, that was a plan. You've done so much, on, you know, and you, you've, you've really talked up for, for, for our people and you're, you're a great leader, you know. How do you want to be remembered? I reckon just by, you know, the things from where I come from mm. and to all the people that have influenced my life and, uh, you know, my grandfather, my grandfather's brothers, 
I never went through a town that I didn't pull in and see my grandfather's brothers because mm. every time I went home, he'd say to me, did you go and see, you know, a cop teddy bear? I said, yep, and I'd have to tell him what he said. And so all those influences um, to the people that put faith and trust in me in Midland when I first got elected, mm. um, to other people that, um, that have guided me and directed me all the way through my life, and to my brother commissioners, who we are still all brothers today and we have something in common. Mm. We all got elected by our people and yeah. you can't take that away. That's the most important thing, isn't it? Absolutely. We yeah. represented our mob. Yeah. Being in a position for our people, by our people. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing your story. I wish we could talk all day, but oh. they're running out of tape. <laughs> but thank you so much for sharing and for being so honest and and for doing what you do, you know. And these, these recordings are going to be around for many, many years. So to your future family, 20, 30 mm-hmm. years down the track, they're going to be listening. What do you want to tell them? Get an education. Be able to compete on a wide playing field with everybody else as an equal and not feel ashamed about it. Be proud of who you are. Never forget where you come from. Never forget where you come from that, and who you're connected to. That little boy in that humpy reading a newspaper. Yeah. I'm sure ten sheep. That's it. Actually, in ten years' time, it'll be hundred. <laughs> All right, Uncle. Thank you so right, much. Thank I'll you. see you later. Bye. Thank you very much. That was Uncle Farley Gala. This podcast was produced by Community Arts Network in partnership with the City of Perth and Australian Broadcasting Corporation. You can hear more stories like this by visiting can.org.au or through your favourite podcast service. I'm Phil Wally Stack. Until next time, Borderwine.